welcome to the latest episode of the Noid Knowledge Podcast. I'm Meg LaRue, your podcast co-host and group editorial director of Cannabis Science and Technology and Cannabis Patient Care Magazines. And I'm Evan Friedman, Vice President of Scientific Cell Company and your other host here at the Noid Knowledge Podcast. This month, we are excited to be joined by James Schwartz, BSN, LNC. James was a trauma-trained nurse who worked in the Trauma Critical Care ICU at Oregon Health and Science University. He is an experienced medical legal consultant and CEO of Cascade High Organics with 20 years of experience cultivating legal cannabis. James is currently a graduate student at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, earning a master's degree in medical cannabis science and therapeutics. In 2022, James published an article about psilocybin and PTSD with Cannabis Science and Technology that was one of the most popular pieces of content on our website for the year. James was on the NCIA Cultivation Committee and has presented cannabis topics to multiple audiences at conferences, including Cannabis Science Conference, PDX HempFest, Cannabis Convention, Cannabis Nurse Conference, and NCIA. James was on the drafting team for NCIA's public testimony to the FDA and Congress on hemp and CBD products, and was a signatory on the 60-page brief that was submitted. His medical, business, legal, and botanical knowledge provides a unique perspective. James has lobbied for cannabis and on the benefits of cannabis, a federally illegal medical therapeutic on both the national and state level with Oregon Cannabis Association and NCIA, and that experience provides knowledge to a similar nexus of factors regarding psilocybin. Today, we'll be discussing James's background, knowledge about psychedelics, and his recent focus on the dangers of the 2018 hemp bill. Let's jump right in and expand our NOID knowledge. So thanks so much for joining us, James. Um, we normally like to start our episodes with some background and context for the listeners. So can you share your cannabis and psychedelics origin story and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me on the program and uh, look forward to our discussion. Uh, so, you know, as as you mentioned in my bio, I'm a nurse by trade. Um, and, you know, what what truly brought me to cannabinoid therapeutics and, and natural health, natural plant medicines. Um, really, I was in college and my best friend died. And that was a pretty impactful experience for me. Um, it, you know, my, yeah, it, 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 it's difficult to understand why, you know, at age 2021 20, that, uh, you lose your you, you lose your best friends who have an entire lifetime ahead of them. It's it was much easier for my brain to understand when my grandparents died or or things like that. And you know, working in healthcare to see elderly uh, you know pass, which is also a hard experience for families. But it's it's a really difficult thing to understand when you know someone who has their whole life ahead of them dies. Uh, and unfortunately during that time, um, I kind of went down a dark path of mostly alcohol and, and drugs and, you know, tried to just kind of numb the pain away. And, uh, you know, fortunately, unfortunately it, that started me on my journey with psychedelics, which was primarily LSD. Um, 
I, I think that it was doing more for my understanding of that whole experience than I probably understood at the time. Uh, but mostly it was to just kind of numb my, numb my brain and, and to the difficulties of what I was experiencing, um, which of course is trauma. Um, and so after, after I kind of realized that I was on a dark path that I didn't think was really leading me anywhere positive, I went completely sober, uh, for a while. And then as I got back into finishing, uh, my nursing degree, cause I had, you know, kind of dropped out of school, um, was struggling to, to kind of put my life back on a path. Um, I revisited cannabis, um, with just cannabis and in a much more therapeutic environment where I was really looking at how it was, you know, helping me. And I also have ADHD and, you know, my understanding of ADHD was that stimulants are really what helps people. Um, you know, it, it allows you to calm your brain down and, and focus on other things. Um, and so when I started using cannabis as a therapeutic and I, and I saw the really positive uh, impact it was having on my ability to study or focus or concentrate um, and be successful, I really began to question why that was because as our understanding back then of cannabis was that it was a depressant on the system. And I said, well, why if my ADHD brain really is supposed to be, you know, treated with a stimulant, why is a depressant also really beneficial and therapeutic? Uh, and that became and that became my starting point for understanding the endocannabinoid system. And that was back in about 97, 98. And, you know, that was about five, seven years after we had really discovered the endocannabinoid system. And once I, you know, had my eyes open to the fact that there was this entire system in the body uh, that was uh, developed as a relationship with this plant, it, it became clear that uh, there had to be some real science behind uh, why cannabis worked as a therapy. And so, you know, that really launched my, my brain into looking at and understanding alternative naturopathic plant medicine. Um, and of course, the experience with psychedelics and LSD um, was just kind of a natural transformation then to also understanding uh, psilocybin and, and mushrooms. Wow. How hard was it to find that information back in the nineties about the endocannabinoid system? Like, were you just like, you just happened to discover like Dr. Raphael Meshulam or like, how did you come about learning that? Definitely Meshulam was one of the first kind of people that I, I read about. Um, thankfully the, you know, the internet really came into bloom about 90, 91, 92 ish. Um, and so we were just able to start accessing information easier. Um, you know, you didn't just have to go to a library or, or find a journal, but you could actually start to search the internet for things, which was a foreign concept, even for those of us who, you know, were pre-technology. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can't remember exactly where I came across it uh, the first time, but definitely it was Meshulam and, and his, the, the discovery of the endocannabinoid system. And I, I wish I could pinpoint which article it was specifically, but suddenly I, I was just open to this, uh, this knowledge that, wow, how, you know, you, 
we don't have systems in our body that weren't specifically designed over evolutionary time periods uh, with with some form of science that supported, you know, why they were useful in our body as, you know, all of our other systems are. And so it, it really was just a, a very interesting launch point to discover that our bodies had such this close relationship with this plant that it had developed, you know, a, a system that was a, a regulatory maintenance system for our body that, you know, fed off of the phytocannabinoids in the plant. It's fascinating. And obviously we are still learning more and more about how this system actually works and what aspects of, of our physiology are involved in it. it seems like everything is touched by the ECS in one way or another. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think in the more that we've learned, you know, I think at first when when I was reading about this ECS and, and, and our knowledge was developing around the ECS, um, you know, endo, short for endogenous, your body's producing all of the same chemicals. And it wasn't that, uh, that, that the plant was mimicking the chemicals in our body. It was that our body was trying to mimic the chemicals found in this plant, which is, you know, just fascinating in and of itself. Amazing. And Amazing. At first, you know, my, my, my thoughts. And I think the early, you know, the early researchers, you know, really saw this as, as something that was affecting the brain. Cause you know, primarily our understanding of cannabis at the time was, you know, based on, you know, the ability to, to stimulate appetite, you know, in, in your first kind of AIDS cancer patients, uh, the ability to work as a, an antidepressant or, you know, a, a, a pain therapy. And so, you know, at that point in time, my, my brain was really focused on the fact that this was a neurological chemical that was causing all of these changes. As we've developed our knowledge of the endocannabinoid system, and we see that it innervates in all other systems of the body, whether it's your respiratory system, um, you know, where, where cannabis acts as a bronchodilator, whether it's your cardiovascular system where we can use cannabis as an antihypertensive to bring blood pressure down, whether it's, you know, in the endocrine system um, with diabetes or, or other, you know, uh, places where uh, cannabis is, is affecting the homeostasis of the body. And, it, you know, I think it's probably been in about the last 10 or 15 years that we've really begun to understand that the sole function of the ECS is homeostasis equilibrium in the body. And that's why it has to innervate into every other system within our body because it can't create homeostasis and equilibrium without being able to affect all of these other systems that go into mm. how we keep someone healthy. So it, it's it's really been fascinating to to be on the on the cutting edge of understanding, you know, almost a whole new body system to us. And, you know, it's it's as our understanding with the you know, the brain, we only understand about 5% of how the brain works. I feel like we're unlocking that potential um, day by day now with both psychedelics as well as things like cannabis. Um, and so it's, it's really been fascinating to watch as our knowledge and understanding of the ECS uh, grows. And at the same time, really frustrating. I live in Oregon where we've had medical cannabis for 25 years. And yet, 
they're not even teaching doctors in medical schools in Oregon about the endocannabinoid system. And, and that's just plain negligence. You, you can't provide good patient care if you're totally discounting one system in the body. They, they wouldn't do that about your heart or your brain or your lungs. So why are they doing it about the endocannabinoid system? Uh, about the endocannabinoid system mm-hmm. that, that is intimately involved in running your brain, your heart, your lungs, uh, your your gastric system, all of it, right? Absolutely. It's, uh, I mean, we think of doctors in this society as being, uh, as holding truths that, that we, we go to get. And then you learn that they don't learn about this whole system, that it's involved in everything. It, it sort of undermines the what we think of doctors to, to boot, but, uh, no doubt. And, you know, it's interesting because I have, you know, I come from a healthcare world. And so a lot of the investors that I looked to when I was starting cascade high were my friends who were doctors, um, that, that were in my network, uh, for raising that friends and family round. And to this day, you know, they'll, they'll say to me, well, you know, show me the scientific evidence that proves that this works. And then I will start to believe it or start to prescribe it. And, and then I try and refer back to them, like, look, we, we don't have that information because we've prevented, been prevented from studying it. And so it, I, I understand where they come from because nowadays healthcare really is evidence-based practice, evidence-based medicine. Mm. And so we're, we're scientists and, and in the healthcare world, you know, with the do no harm kind of mantra, uh, you, you don't want to just prescribe something that you don't necessarily know how it's going to work in the body. And because cannabis is such a complex plant with how it inter- interacts with the body, the science is just lagging because of the lack of research. And so I, I, I understand why they kind of, have that perspective. Um, but it's just frustrating that more healthcare professionals aren't taking the time to actually look at the evidence that is out there. Cause there is a mountain of evidence. It's just not in double blinded RCTs with longitudinal studies over time. Um, but the, the mountain of anecdotal small survey, small research group, uh, information is out there for people who want to really dive into it. Even going back to what you said, um, sorry, Evan, about um, the education side of it, like if if the medical education system started talking about this, then the newer doctors coming out maybe wouldn't feel like they had to have the traditional clinical trial method, you know, like evidence based stuff like they could look at this with a different light if they had that education to back it up. It might also help, you know, some of the. MD PhDs that come out of medical schools too, right? It's it's not just for the clinic that medical schools exist. We mm-hmm. we do train research doctors too, uh, and that's who would be performing these double blinded uh, studies so that the the general practitioners could feel comfortable with 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 this medicine. It's uh, you know, we we find ourselves in a bit of a catch twenty two at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, couldn't and, agree. I couldn't agree with you more, Evan. And, uh, 
you know, I, it, if we could stimulate those conversations or stimulate that interest in understanding uh, the science and the research, maybe we could attract more of those PhDs and, and people uh, into studying it. Um, I, I was, I'm, I'm still hopeful that, you know, Biden's new policy on, on cannabis healthcare research is, is going to, you know, start to springboard us that I know that the, you know, DEA is and, and FDA are starting to look at approving more sources, you know, because this is the other problem that we run into is, you know, a lack of high quality source material. Um, I know some of the, you know, researchers that have grants with the NIH and um, NIDA through University of Mississippi's, you know, the only allowable uh, legal cannabis farm in the country on, on the campus of Ole Miss. Um, and, and, and what they'll report to you is that they'll, the, the product that they get from that farm comes there, there comes with full of stems and seeds and, you know, just material that is poor testing is low quality, doesn't have broad cannabinoid profiles is absent a lot of terpenes and so you know clearly a lot needs to be done to fix the system and and i hope that we're you know biden's new policies will will help take us in the direction of at least having access to high quality material that can continue to continue the science it would it would be nice to see uh nida exit the equation potentially because uh, for, for our viewers that don't know this organization, it is NIADA, the National Institute on Addiction and Drug Abuse. And uh, this is an organization that was built for the war on drugs. Uh, and so fundamentally, there is a bias within it that believes that these Schedule One drugs have no uh, medicinal value and tremendous abuse potential. So when that's the mindset that's funding the research, what do you think the results of that research are going to be? And and even when they're doing research, they're looking for negative outcomes. They're not focused on, on the positive outcomes. They're looking for negative outcomes that support their theories that cannabis is bad. Um, And so if you're not if you're not going into that research with an open mind, looking for the answers uh, that you get from doing it, and you're just looking for them to support your negative bias, that's what you're going to end up with. Um, and so you're absolutely right. NIDA is, is you know, I, I like to think it's well-intended coming from a healthcare world where I would like to believe that the organizations are, you know, uh, primarily focused in, in the health of the American population, but I, I think that over time we've clearly seen that that isn't necessarily the case, especially, you know, as I think I mentioned to you guys that, you know, it, it was really frustrating to be a part of of the system that pushed uh, opioid yeah. opioid pain medicines, right? I mean, we were told as nurses, nurses in the hospital that if a patient complains of pain, you give them pain medicine. Um, and we were told that opiates were safe, um, and and so we, you know, proliferated the use of, of opioid pain medications, and 
unfortunately, that's been to the, the a real detriment of society. I mean, 25 years later now, one of the most dangerous things uh, to the population is, is opioid overdoses. Um, and, and so it's, it's pretty sad to see and to have been a part of that system that helped create the problem. Um, and I, I hope that, you know, more healthy, natural plant mycology therapeutics come into play and, and can really help us get away from the harm that a, a lot of pharmaceuticals have done to us. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. So I'd, I'd love to learn more about the paper that you wrote for Cannabis Science and Technology last year on psilocybin and PTSD and psychedelics treating psychological conditions. Can you share some highlights from your article and why you think that article resonated so much with the audience last year? Well, to the to the point about why it resonated with the audience, um, you know, I, I approach most of the things that I do um, when I'm writing a paper or when I'm speaking at a conference. I approach most of it from the nursing perspective that I've developed and evolved over time. And what I saw was when, you know, when physicians speak to patients they're usually using high level terminology. Um, they're usually very scientific. They like to take the emotion out of things, you know, and, and I understand why they're doing that one. They're, you know, they're, they're very scientific brains and they're a huge base of knowledge that they're working from, you know, wants to, wants to, to be uh, expressed through their knowledge. But one of the things that I saw was that patients often didn't understand or families often didn't understand. And as the nurse at the bedside, you know, I was the one who was getting those follow up questions like, what did that mean? What, you know, sometimes you'd walk out of a out of a, a really difficult um, patient family meeting and having to explain that their their loved one is likely going to die. And the family didn't even understand that because of the way it was talked about. So my approach to, to writing and speaking really is how, am, how can I be that go between that, um, that one that really helps the family or patients understand the concepts um, better so that they can use them in their lives. Um, so when I approached, you know, the, the psilocybin article, one, you know, the science is kind of rapidly evolving and still relatively new, not the practice of using, uh, you know, psychedelics, especially your, your naturally occurring ayahuasca's, peyotes, psilocybin. Um, but how were those working in the body? And, and so, you know, I had experimented with mushrooms in college. And as I said before, I used a lot of LSD Um and so I had a very knowledgeable personal relationship with those products. Um, but even I didn't understand how they worked. And most people in science didn't understand how they worked until we really started to dive into them. So I had been using microdosing of, of psilocybin um, personally, had really noticed the benefit that it had added to my uh 
emotional and psychological well-being. And then as COVID hit, a lot more people started to kind of come out of the closet and be like, hey, I'm, I'm really interested in this. Um, you know, can, can we give this a try or, or what would you suggest or how is it working? And so with my best kind of nurse healthcare knowledge, I said, okay, look, this is our understanding of how this works, why it works. Um, and the fact that we can achieve therapeutic potential even on a low dose. And so I, most of the people who are approaching me who had been, you know, psilocybin naive and had never experienced it, their biggest concern was always like the bad trip that, that everybody talks about. Well, not everybody, but, you know, of course the, the fringe elements of anything, whether it's politics or, or science, you know, those fringe elements typically have the loudest voices, especially when they're coming from organizations like NIDA or, you know, the AMA or, or people who are trying to scare you away from not using something that could be potentially beneficial. Um, and so, you know, I really like microdosing as a way of introducing it to people who are, are very nervous about it because we know that there's important things uh, about psychedelics, including set and setting and environment. And so one of the first things that I wanted to do was open people to psilocybin in a way that I knew um, would be something that they could tolerate. And so even some of my friends who are, you know, kind of very, we'll call them anti-drug, never really used cannabis, never really used mushrooms. Um, I would give them a, a, a very small microdose. And so when I talk about microdosing, it's, it's a range for me. And, and, and the range is from subsensorium, meaning you don't even feel that the mushrooms are acting on you to uh, sub hallucinogenic, where you're not seeing things, but you can feel the the effect in your body, you get that warm tinglingness in your, in your spine and your neck. Um, so where would you put the colloquial term threshold dose in, in this kind of spectrum you're describing of dosaging? I again, define threshold, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it depends one, what are you trying to treat? Two, what's that person ready for? Three, how are what's their experience even being able to see those things? Like, you know, can you tell that that little bit of extra elation or enjoyment that you're getting out of something, it could potentially be the mushrooms affecting you, or is it just allowing your mind to to interpret that set setting and environment in a way that is more pleasurable to you, which we would think is still an effect of the mushrooms. Um, but in general, microdosing is, you know, extremely safe. It, you know, as I write in the article, probably one of the only drugs that has the same sort of safety efficacy profile as cannabis is, is mushrooms. Um, and so you can use these microscopic doses, um, and inevitably those people who are very naive and worried about that bad trip come to me the next day and they're like, Hey, I didn't even feel that. And, and I said, well, then I did my job right. Because as a nurse, I want to do no harm. And I know that if someone has a bad experience in their first experience, the likelihood that they'll ever try it again 
uh, is very low and I know how therapeutic it can be. And so I don't need to fix them the first time that they try it. I need to have them a, I need for them to have a positive experience that opens their mind to the fact that it has potential to help them um, and be enjoyable at the same time. That's, that's fantastic. I mean, uh, it's, it, it's, it's breaking that seal that first time and, and showing them that this thing that they've been afraid of from, uh, because of whatever reason, but endless propaganda being amongst it, um, is, is just in their minds. It really is. And and being able to kind of break those things down is really what psilocybin does and what a lot of the psycho psychedelics do. Um, it, it unblocks some of those pathways that we otherwise close ourselves off to. And, you know, that's kind of one of my final points in the article is we've, as, as a culture, we've developed this real need to control, uh, our, our settings around us and, and, and our decision-making processes. And we don't leave enough up to taking in all of the, the vibrations and, and the other parts of the environmental world that are around us to be able to allow them to be interpreted by our body. And, you know, there is a true spiritual karmic energy to cannabis and to mushrooms and, and ayahuasca and peyote and, and all of these things really kind of work together in our bodies to, to transform our experiences and, and open us up to the potential of what's out there without this need to control. And I, I think that's part of the other thing that really scares people getting back to, you know, not wanting to have that bad trip is they feel out of control. They don't have, you know, they people speak to the fact that, you know, I'm way out there and I, I'm scared, but you know, the, that need to control also is kind of what hampers our ability to, to take in the therapy and feel what it's doing for our bodies. It's well, a great article. So thank you again for submitting it to us. And uh, for any listeners that are curious about it, I will put it in the show notes for them. Um, I am curious what you think the reasons are that, that things are changing so fast with psilocybin and psychedelics regarding like medical cannabis acceptance and even legalization I mean, medical acceptance, not cannabis, um, compared to cannabis. Yeah. Well, um, you know, as, as we talked about a little bit prior, cannabis is, we know that there's about 140 to 150 known cannabinoids at this point. And even at this point, we're still finding new cannabinoids in, in the plant. We also know that there's 50 plus, 40 plus terpenes that interact and then additionally with flavonoids, one of the problems that makes cannabis such a difficult product to research is all of these varied combinations of these chemicals that create the therapeutic effect. And so when you look at how many different variables create a satisfactory outcome, you've got 150 cannabinoids times 50 plus terpenes plus 17 plus uh, flavonoids. And then you've got all of the different devil dosages and levels of each one of those products. And so that's the synergistic entourage effect that we talk about in cannabis. And it's, 
why my belief when we're using cannabis, we need whole plant medicine needs to be organic, organically grown, um, because all of these things play a role in how it works. Um, with psilocybin, it's much more easy to research. I can give someone psilocybin. It's a single molecular compound. They can take that. And when there is a positive effect, we can attribute that back to psilocybin or, you know, the, the metabolite psilocin. Um, and so with cannabis, it's very hard to say this cannabis caused this effect when I can't reproduce it. One, because even in same strain material, there's, there's going to be differences in levels of terpenes or, or cannabinoids based on where it was grown in the garden. How much light did it get? How much air did it get? Was it in the corner of the room versus in the center of the room? And so all of those things affect the, the chemical production of the plant versus, you know, a single molecular compound. The FDA does not like multivariate compounds where anything can be causing the effect. Um, but when you take psilocybin, it's easy to measure the outcome because it's a single molecular compound. And so in, you know, we'll say in the last five to seven years, we've, as more research has started to be done on psilocybin specifically, but not just on psilocybin, on things like ketamine, you know, as we know in 2019, the FDA approved the off-label use of ketamine, which was a drug we were using in the ER as an anesthetic. We we give it uh, use it a lot in kids because it's very safe. Uh, we use it to anesthetize kids for minor procedures, laceration repairs, etc. Uh, and it was a very effective anesthetic drug for those purposes. But then researchers started to see that there was this side effect that it was having for people. Um, and so that led to some research. And then in 2019, FDA approved ketamine as uh, in its off-labeled use for depression and PTSD. Um, and that kind of opened the door, I really feel like, to, to, why, to our study of psychedelics. And then, of course, mushrooms and psilocybin kind of followed right behind that. And in the last five years, we've seen a good handful of studies, um, you know, and, and they're expanding every day. I, I grabbed about five in the, in, that I talk about in the article um, that were kind of the, the best research that I could see that showed definitive benefit, um, at least as compared to the other um, antidepressant SSRIs, SNRIs that are out there. Um, showing at least as good eff efficacy, if not better in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think that we're heading very quickly to uh, a legalization of psilocybin because of that ability to take a drug that has a single molecular compound, measure its effect on a, on a person through all kinds of various study, uh, you know, uh, tools that we use to assess efficacy and say, okay, this had a positive effect on this outcome. Um, and so I, I think that we'll see um, not just psilocybin, but other psychedelics start to play a role in true therapeutics. And I, and I do think that we'll see some sort of legal psilocybin, uh, even for medical use, um, 
coming in the very near future, definitely before cannabis, because as we said, it's the FDA is never going to approve drugs that way. And that's why the only cannabinoid therapeutic that's plant derived is a CBD isolate done by GW Pharmaceutical, now Jazz Pharmaceutical. Um, that's because they isolated CBD and said, okay, this CBD does this. Um, and and, and, and the controls it. they have of the growing process of that plant, they have locked down genetics and the variability in the growing process is almost non-existent. So they, the, the steps that have to be taken to get a complex plant like that as a medicine are just astronomical. Um, mushroom is is probably easier to handle and grows a lot faster too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 has, as I said, very definitive outcomes um, with its therapy. And you know, getting to your point there, one isolates don't work as well as whole plant, which is why I'm uh, I'm a real proponent of whole plant. But it also creates that difficulty in understanding what's causing what. But to, a, a perfect example of why we need more compounds in cannabinoid therapeutics. I have a friend who's a biochemist at, at, a, at a bigger company, I'll remain nameless. But they had a 98% pure CBD product that was showing amazing efficacy. The researchers wanted to push it to an even purer product. Um, and when they hit 99% pure CBD, the efficacy actually went down. And that was because in that 1%, there was some fraction of a cannabinoid that was so important that it increased the efficacy of the CBD alone. And so when you start to think about that, then you can understand why all of these other minor cannabinoids are so important. And, you know, I think Dady Mary, uh, the researcher from Israel, pointed this out at, at, uh, at Cannabis Science Conference there on the East, East Coast um, with his research about CBN and sleep. It, it's kind of very well known or it's very well thought that CBN really was that cannabinoid that helps with sleep. But what Dr. Mary found was that Actually, CBD or CBN wasn't the cause of, of why this drug worked so well. It was these other two minor cannabinoids that was, were masked behind the other cannabinoids that actually showed the real therapeutic potential of, of cannabis to induce or, or promote sleep. So that's just another example of why this plant is so complex. And, you know, our knowledge today is going to be vastly different from what it is 20 years from now when we really truly begin to understand the plant and, and how it works. Yeah. But it's hopefully, you know, the, the structural research changes that, that you were talking about uh, start to take effect this year and the foundational research that will be required for our understanding in 20 years to actually make a dent will, will begin in earnest. And we're going to have to figure out different sorts of study models because you can't really do a double blind randomized control trial. <laughs> if someone's going to get a placebo, they're going to know that they're not high. 
right? And that immediately creates bias in the study. And so we're going to have to figure out how to, how to do true studies that look at the effects without having to have it be against a placebo that shows no effect. I, I, some of the research that's been done out of Hopkins um, with regards to psilocybin has been using diphenhydramine or Benadryl as their placebo uh, because it induces a, a similar kind of euphoric effect in your brain. Um, and so we're going to have to be doing studies like that. Something. That, yeah, that, that create a, a placebo effect while still inducing some sort of a, a, a you know, a, a high, a, a, a euphoria. Or... Or, or we're going to have to figure out an, another reference methodology, I suppose. Yeah. And one of the studies that I cited in that article was psilocybin versus cetosalopram. Um, and, and so looking at one drug comparative to another, and that doesn't necessarily prove outcomes, but it definitely proves comparable therapeutic value um and in terms of being able to say psilocybin did equally as well or a little bit better than than cetosalopram did cool okay so can we do a little bit of neuroscience education here um tell tell us tell the listeners what systems and receptors are involved when ingesting these psychedelic compounds? And like, do you have an analogy you prefer to use to help people understand kind of what's happening on a, on a, you know, chemical or physiological basis? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I, Certainly with psilocybin, and I think that what we'll find with a lot of psychedelics is their their uh, their effect is most seen at the 5-HT2A receptor sites. Um, serotonin serotonin is known to to change you know brain chemistry. It's why we work with serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the the SSRIs, um, and so we know that that's part of the chemical receptor ligand process of, of taking these chemicals, transferring them, you know, through the blood and the brain barriers and, and being able to have an effect. Um, we know that PTSD kind of comes from this uh, improper or, or misfiring circuitry within uh, the amygdala um, and that that is the, the fight or flight response in, in, in the brain that helps us survive. And it, you know, it came out of those real survival instincts. Is this a situation where I need to, to, to fight and defend or should I be running? Um, am I fighting a, you know, a Siberian tiger or is this a, a squirrel or something that I, I need to deal with? Um, and so when you get into that, what we call the amygdala hijack, your brain is not transferring that signal to the frontal lobe and then allowing your intelligent executive functioning level to be able to rationalize what's, what's this situation and how do I best deal with it? Um, 
And so when we get into that misfiring pathway of the amygdala hijack, that's what sets us up for this constant state of being uh, anxious and, and fearful and, and uh, not being able to process out rationally. So when we get into psilocybin, the most recent science that I think that just came out of Hopkins, was it Hopkins? I can't remember. Um, I just read an article last week about the fact that the claustrum area of the brain is what's allowing this activation. And so what we've seen in psychedelic research, when we look at brain scans, PET scans, MRIs, um, things like that, is that psychedelics activate all centers of or all areas of the brain. And so the entire brain glows multicolors um, on the scans. Whereas in a lot of other therapies, we're trying to pinpoint very specific areas of the brain. And so on a PET scan or on a, a, a CT scan or on an MRI, we'll see that this chemical illuminates this area of the brain, whether it's a frontal lobe or, you know, your hypothalamus or your um, other, other areas. And so rather than being able to, to kind of get at the true nature of what's going on when we store memories with related to emotions that, you know, smells are stored in another part of the brain and, and, and a visual memories in another area of the brain and an emotion that's cre created is stored in another area of the brain. It's hard to unlock all of that if you can't access all of those areas of the brain. Um, and so what they see is this claustrum tissue is kind of this fabric network that creates that that connects the amygdala to all of these areas, other areas of the brain. And so you're able to reactivate the brain. So what we best understand of psychedelics is the default mode network is this base level of operations of your brain that's ongoing pretty much all the time, especially in restful wake times when you're daydreaming and everything else. Um, but that there's always this operating system going on in your brain that's controlling a lot of base level function. With psychedelics, it does a default mode network reboot. And so just like rebooting a computer, your brain is kind of resetting itself. In that process, because the brain is malleable and has what we call plasticity, we're able to reform connections, we're able to build new connections. Um, and so in this default mode network, it's almost like you just updated your computer to a new software and it's making different connections to different places within your system um, and reformulating that. The other part of psychedelics that is really beneficial is the disassociate, disassociative property. It allows you to separate your emotional connection to something um, and allow you to look at that problem or emotion or memory that you're struggling with in a different way that doesn't create that same emotional impact that's driving the fear, the anxiety, or, or, you know, that's at the root cause of your PTSD or depression. Um, and so during that default mode network reboot, 
you're forming new synapses because of that brain's plasticity. You're able to separate yourself from the negative connotation of that memory and relook at it in a way that allows you to understand it better um, while also connecting you more emotionally to yourself, which is, you know, really odd and, and almost uh, antithetical to the dissociative property. But at the same time, it's allowing you to interact with your emotional core while also disassociating from this very traumatic memory or, or um, issue that you're having. So that's kind of the best I can describe it. We, we know some of the root medical chemical pathways and receptors that are going on. We understand where it's kind of activating in the brain. Um, and then we, we understand some of the basic chemical properties, but we're just starting to put it together in science and, and begin to understand it fully. That's so fascinating. Yeah. As with that claustrum, I was, I was really interested to see that that was happened to be, I think they just did a, um, an NPR, uh, public broadcasting special on, on the psychedelics and, and the brain. And that was a, a researcher who had just come out with the, the claustrum idea. Do we know yet if it inter if psychedelics interact with the endocannabinoid system as well? I would think that they have to because of all of the same pathways. Cannabis also works in, an, in, in a 5-HT2A receptor site. There's lots of different chemical pathways that cannabis works, but that's definitely one of them. Um, and so I think that we're, you know, trying to understand it all as we know, the ECS is extremely complex. And the more we know about it, the more we realize how complex it is. Um, I, I think, as we said, with psilocybin, it's a little bit easier to track. Um, but they definitely are acting in a lot of the same chemical pathways. So, it, you know, whether it's just utilizing the same receptor sites and, and same chemical pathways, or whether or not there's a real interaction between the two, I don't know that we, our science has gotten that far along. For us to be able to understand. And some of those studies you mentioned where like they're seeing the brain light up in all different colors, is that like higher doses of psychedelics or can you see that with microdosing as well? Yeah, with microdosing as well. In fact, uh, that most recent article that I read and based on that, that PBS special was on, um, was really looking at lower dose is in, in the brain and, and could they elicit the same sort of effects with, you know, lower doses versus kind of macro doses. So it, it appears so. And it goes along with the theory of microdosing. And for some people, they need that deep dive. But for other things, you can create that same sort of effect that larger macro doses have through prolonged microdoses, so continuing to allow those chemicals to, to interact in the brain uh, over a period of time. And so there's no set definitive schedule for microdosing, um, but definitely there's some, some studies or at least people looking at like, okay, microdosing two days in a row with two days off, then one day on, two days off. Um, and they're looking at various effects. But what we see is that in general, psilocybin works in the brain uh, over the course of about 30 days after a dose. Um, and a lot of times, you know, someone can be healed with a single dose, not only because of the way the mushrooms is working, but 
once they get past that recirculating trigger that's causing their depression or their PTSD, once that has subsided just long enough for them to see the beauty in the world around them, suddenly it starts to really change their mind and their mind is able to actually do the work on its own with a small fraction of the chemical still acting in the brain, but just that 30 day window of clarity and, and, and joy in their lives allows them to, to heal their brain on their own and, and move completely away from other normal antidepressant therapy. And, you know, I think that's one of the frustrating things that we see in the pharmacological world of, of treating depression is, is people are taking scads of pills for, years, decades on end. And while yes, maybe their depression isn't as bad, but they lose their sex drive, they lose their emotional connection to their partners, they, you know, they, they're losing all of these other things that are a part of their life um, that, you know, potentially are as negative as the depression was to start with. And, and so finding alternative therapies that work, that aren't lifelong addictions to pharmaceuticals it, is always you know, a preferred method. Don't let the pharmaceutical companies hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And Evan, you and I've talked about that. I mean, it, it's, it's frustrating. And, you know, coming from a healthcare background, I understand that there's a role for allopathic Western medicine, but there is clearly a role for alternative natural medicine that you know, was around for the first couple of thousands of years before, before we only in the last 50 or 100 years began depending on, you know, on man-made synthetic chemicals on the body. And, and of course, this silver bullet approach of one, one problem, one chemical, one solution. Yeah. The body is a big complex system and, and we need to treat the whole thing. And so, Generally, when I'm when I'm working with patients who I'm really trying to to help, the the first question I ask, what's your diet like? Um, you know, I, we've moved so far away from a healthy diet, and certainly in the U.S. in in the world in general, but certainly in the U.S. I mean, you go into our grocery stores, and it's mostly all kinds of refined sugars. It's all kinds of artificial flavors and colors that, you know, I have a friend who, if he just even has a small bit of an artificial color in something, it totally affects his body and he can feel it because he's so in tune with his body that I won't even know, you know, I'll give him something that I didn't even know that there was an artificial color in. And like 15 minutes later, he's like, what was in that? And then I'll go back and the very last little thing in there was, you know, yellow dye number three or whatever. And you're like, Jesus, how, it's, it's amazing that he can feel that in his body. Um, and so when I, you know, I'm, a, I'm an ADHD kid and, and there's truly a real diagnosis of it, but how much of why kids have the short attention span that they do is because of how much sugar we're feeding them. Uh, that changes the brain chemicals in and of itself. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I too, I'm an ADHD kid. I've had a diagnosis for geez, almost 30 years now. Um, and as a parent now, I'm trying to understand how much of it is from the environment. How much of it can I help my children avoid? And 
unfortunately, what I've read is that television is one of the biggest environmental causes of, of ADHD because just the way it's cut to keep your attention, life is not cut like that. Life does not occur in seven second spurts. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, but that's how we've trained the, the brain to pay attention to it. For sure. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. And uh, the unintended consequences are are every day showing themselves faster, right? Because we keep changing the world faster. Yeah, exactly. One of the I, I've seen some early research, and you know, I think that it's been validated through some of the Department of Defense mm, uh, weapons that we're starting to use in terms of similar to the Cuban thing where the, the vibration, yeah, sound. And, um, I've seen some early studies where people can elicit a endocannabinoid response through vibrational sounds that are pushed into their brain. And so there's actually talk of integrating that into, uh, video gaming systems where you can actually activate centers of the brain just through the the sounds and vibrations that you're pushing into the brain. So, so I've heard about some of this too, not from the same angle that you're describing, but like I have an app that uses the flash on your phone and you like place it very close to your eyes and you do it with closed eyes and the pattern that it goes off at with different intensities can create closed eyes visuals. Very interesting. And I hear that there is a place in the Denver area where you go and they control light pulsing. And I think also some vibration in Maybe you're in like a gamer chair or something like that, and they can induce um, semi-hallucinogenic states like that. It's, uh, it's And I think, you know, some of this research dates back to the 60s and the 70s and like the MK Ultra kind of stuff. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, so I, I think very similarly correlated with that is the the studies that are showing that you can induce those same sort of therapeutic psychological psychedelic sort of experiences through uh, you know uh, meditation and yep. uh, the ability to to access those areas of the brain through you know just meditating and 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 being able to similarly create those therapeutic effects. I the the thing that always uh, tickles me about that that thought, which is spectacular and amazing is that it requires so much self-control. And in the end, the realization that you're driving at is, is to release uh, and to, to recognize that control is an illusion all along and that, you know, you go with the ebbs and flows of the universe. So I, I don't know. That's just. And exactly. Which is, you know, <laughs> that same part of psilocybin that I talk about is the ability to let go of control and, yeah. and realize that our, our thought processes around control are actually what are, is inhibiting our, our ability <laughs> to truly be happy. For, for sure. For sure. Um, 
Okay, so I've got I've got uh, one last question for you. I think Meg's got one more after me, but I've I've got one more. So, and I'm not sure that you you're gonna have the answer, but I'm gonna ask you anyway. So, um, there's all these different strains of mushrooms. There's different there's different strains of, of psilocybe cubensis, but there's other psilocybes too. And um, the what what's reported is more than just a difference in intensity of an experience, but but various aspects of the experience differ between the these different mushrooms. Um, there must be other compounds that are influencing that experience. Um, so we've talked about psilocybin and its metabolite psilocin, which is the active compound in the body as best as we can tell. But I, do you know anything about these other compounds? Uh, does this complicate this idea that it's just psilocybin really um and, and now we're back into polypharmacy and it's it's too difficult um but what what can you say on on this sort of ramble that i've got <laughs> yeah so it, exactly and you know as we talked about with cannabis that synergistic honor entourage effect that comes from all of these multiple chemicals involved there certainly is the same thing in, in, in mushrooms. Um, it, we call them alkaloids in mushrooms, things like baocysteine, norcilicin, argenosin. And so we clearly know now that there are other chemicals at play. We are just beginning to truly understand those. Norcilicin, they see, is more potent than psilocin but they see that it's also not crossing the blood brain barrier, um, which is interesting. And so, yes, you are absolutely right. And your, your thoughts are guiding to you, guiding you to what the most current research is. Um, I don't think I had, I, I was unable to unearth any sort of um, real research knowledge of what's going on with them. We're just starting to understand some of those other alkaloid chemicals. Uh, clearly they're going to have an effect. There would, there wouldn't need to be 200 types of mushrooms if they all produce the same thing. Right. Uh, so whether we're talking about lion's mane or golden teacher or penis envy, there, there's, there must be other chemicals as to why, each one has a different sort of therapeutic effect for, for sure. There must be. And, and I think what's, what's interesting is how many, right? Uh, so th there's similar biosynthetic pathways and maybe there's, there's some play in them. So they produce similar kind of, of compounds, but it, I I'm curious um, if, if the pool's as large as the cannabinoid pool, which I mean, fu fungi are complicated organisms, 
more yeah. potentially more complicated than than plants. They're closer to animals so than they are to plants. The same time. Yeah, right. It's so simple, right? That's it, what's so fascinating about them. Uh, I don't I don't know how many of you are watching the the Last of Us, the new show on HBO. <laughs> yeah, I just started watching that. It's really good. Yeah, certainly starting to to increase our you know commonplace knowledge of of how fungus work. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, it, have you I, seen I, have you seen Star Trek Discovery? I don't think that I have. So I, I know I haven't. <laughs> they they are so committed to to weaving this uh, modern knowledge of, of fungi that there's actually a character on the show named Paul Stamets. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, you know, the fungus and the spores that come from it are, are so strong. There's even, even uh, fungal spores that their encapsulating cell walls can be resistant to, to bleach, which, you know, is something that is supposed to be the, the be all end all to killing all microorganisms. Um, And so the fact that there can be, you know, but I I don't know why it shocks me. I mean, you look at even down in the depths of, uh, you know, volcanic vents at the bottom of the ocean living in toxic environments there's all kinds of microorganisms so life finds a way and definitely there is a true connection between fungus and and bacteria in the life cycle of the earth and you know as we mentioned drives some of my real interest in organic you know agriculture when it comes to the cannabis plant to allow that full circle of the world uh, from what's living below the soil and feeding my plants to what I get from the plants. So then the plant material dying back off and feeding some of those other organisms, uh, again, is just really interesting. And I mean, you need the fungi to facilitate that feeding of the next round because they are nature's recycling centers, right? Yeah. They even break the... down plastics. Yep. I've, yeah. It's, I, uh, that that uh, documentary, fantastic fungi. They they go into the breaking down plastics bit. It's uh, f- fungi is is probably the answer. It's it's funny how many people are like, ew, mushrooms. Right. <laughs> um, so to to wrap up our conversation today, I just wanted to learn a little bit more about your master's thesis related to the danger of the 2018 farm bill and how hemp-derived intoxicating cannabinoids could spoil the industries. Can you just share what you're working on there and what you hope to see change? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think that we were all encouraged by the 2018 hemp farm bill. Um, clearly, it, it was a step in the right direction of um, promoting legal cannabinoid therapies, even if it was based off of CBD or CBD isolate. Um, And so what we saw happen after the 2018 farm bill, lots of cultivators uh, and processors jumped into the, the legal side of the industry where they felt a little bit safer, a little less at risk. Uh, that produced it depends volume. how you define risk <laughs> <laughs> right uh, that 
that ended up with massive productions of, of hemp and, and, and the uh, CBD isolates and other whole spectrum oils. Um, but we crashed the market because there was suddenly all of this product, but and you know, it hasn't really, while it's gained a lot of favor in the, in the public, it, we haven't figured out how to, to get it into people's hands at a, at an effective price point and, and business model. Um, and so the chemists realized I could, they could take CBD isolate and synthetically, uh, chemically alter it to become Delta eight THC, Delta nine THC, Delta 10 HHC. There's a host of other cannabinoids that they've, uh, synthesized, uh, from the original CBD. Uh, and because there is this basic loophole in, in the farm bill that all of its derivative products from legal hemp are basically legal in the industry, including the DEA saying, we can't really regulate this as our, our understanding is that the, you know, that the farm bill allowed this production and because of the way it's written, I think that we could parse some words and, and potentially come up with some explanations of why they could be effective against some of these. But in any case, we started creating all of these intoxicating cannabinoids from hemp. One of the reasons why cannabis has been fairly regulated uh, in, in your state markets is because although we know it's safe, there's still a lot of propaganda from NIDA and other sources that talk about the dangers and the risks of cannabis um, that we've in, in the legal industry have really been under the microscope of trying to deliver safe products because that we realize that if we produce products that aren't safe, that have too high a dosage or, or other byproduct products in them in the form of pesticides or whatnot, that they could be potentially dangerous. We don't understand those dangers fully, um, but that's why we've been so under the microscope and, and, and try to be so thoughtful about our, our rollout of, of states' uh, legal cannabis systems. But because there are zero rules right now in the hemp industry, people can produce products that have five, 800 milligrams of an intoxicating cannabinoid in them. The first, and so dating back to about two, three years ago, I saw this proliferation of, of products that as a healthcare person, as someone who's in the legal cannabis industry, were potentially dangerous and harmful, not to mention the other chemical byproduct metabolites of the synthesis um, that are really potentially dangerous to people. That, that's um, my concern. It isn't, right. so, isn't so much these uh, these synthesized compounds. It is the byproducts because there's no standards. There's It's not being produced in a CGMP facility according to FDA standards. It's in some cases very literally being performed in a garage. Absolutely. Um, and so we saw the, you know, this year we, or this past year, we saw the first effects of what happens, um, you know, a, a, a mother who is now in prison or in jail because her child got a hold of, uh, you know, her, her Delta eight gummies, um, that we don't know the true reason why the, the child died, but, 
a, a child died and uh that in the media world has come out as cannabis killed this little kid um or this child and so it's up to us in the industry to to look at public health and safety measures and so when i saw this proliferation of of products that i knew at best were potentially dangerous and at worst extremely harmful um it 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 became clear to me that we need to do something about this we need to be talking to the legislators the regulators getting people involved and making sure that okay if we're going to allow this 2018 farm bill and we're going to say that these derivative products are okay then we need they need some form of regulation i'm not someone who believes in over regulating but at minimum and this is what we talked about in in that cbd paper to the fda and congress was you know minimal you know we need at least some dosing in, in you know regulations around these products we need some packaging requirements we need some language around uh marketing whether it be to kids i mean the the number of products that i've seen in this uh in, that fall under these hemp derived cannabinoids market they're runts and skittles and all of these other things that look like candies to kids um and and i'm sure that that's what happened in this case in virginia and so uh we need some at least bare minimum regulation and we need the legislators to really actually address this problem because it is a public health and safety threat and as a nurse who wants to see my my patients or consumers in general the public health have safe and healthy products it, it it's a real risk so i've chosen to focus my my capstone project on uh writing a a a paper that basically includes how did we get to this level what's going on uh, you know in the manufacture of these products and then what sort of things that we need to address uh with legislators and regulators to make this a a, a safer market because it one bad apple can spoil a bunch, and and if we're not careful, uh, you'll see the FD, you'll see the government take a, another hardline stance against cannabis, and and that's the last thing we need as we we start to move forward. Agreed. Agreed. So I mean, I'm I'm appreciative of the states that have taken action around around these compounds. Um, I, it's tough. It's tough because I can see the other side of it, the economic side of it, right? Uh, the, the 2018 farm bill promised a, a essentially a new cash crop. Uh, so I'm a farmer and I plant a thousand acres and it's not hot. I, I lucked out. I planted, you know, seeds that were, that weren't actually, uh, that were compliant and I harvested it all and I can't sell any of this hemp flour. And so I've now made, and so somebody tells me, well, I can extract it and I can make full spectrum CBD oil and I can't sell any of this full spectrum CBD oil. So I can uh, take it further down into CBD isolate and I can't sell any of the CBD isolate. And I just keep adding cost into this material I have uh, without without recouping anything 
at every turn because everybody's doing exactly the same thing. And all of a sudden, I'm now presented with the prospects of selling something that people actually want. And I can actually make some of my money back. What am I supposed to do? Say, no, I'm going to take this giant epic loss that I've been uh, working my my way deeper in over the last few years uh, and not do it? Like, I mean, the, the, the appropriate answer is yes, that is what you should do. And the government should figure out some subsidies and bumper crops and all of this. But like... Well, and that's the thing is I I like Delta Eight. I I think it presents me with a different high. I'm more focused. I I, I like the high that I get from Delta Eight. Um, I understand it's a better anti-inflammatory as well. That I can't speak to me, at this me. point. <laughs> um, certainly, some of the acid varieties of cannabinoids we've seen that effect. But uh, you know, if a product is safe, I'm all for it. Um, but when, when it's the Wild West and there's zero regulatory guidance on on how products should should be put into the market, that's where I, I, I look at greed and people who are trying to make a profit, cutting corners, doing anything in their garage, as you said, people who aren't true organic chemists who are, you know, doing all kinds of crazy things and not looking at the potential byproducts. And we don't even know what byproducts are in some of these products. Because they're not tested. There is zero requirement for lab testing of these products. And we've seen that in all number of different media stories of, from news groups about the fact that, hey, we tested 10 samples and only two actually had in them what they said they had in them. And these five had THC levels that were too high. And these ones didn't have any CBD at all. And these ones had, you know, so yeah, <laughs> we, we just need to, to get to an equal level playing field, uh, both for... THC cannabis farmers, as well as all of the other products that are proliferating in the market under the 2018 Farm Bill. Yeah, makes sense. I think on the consumer side, too, there's like this assumption of safety when they buy products. And, you know, I'm sure that that poor mother had no idea that she was buying, bringing something in the house that could be that harmful to her child. And, you know, yeah, that's, and that's it, really sad. It, it's interesting and, you know, without getting too political, you know, they're starting to look at legislation now where you can hold the parents of gun owners or of kids who shoot people with guns responsible. If we're going to hold a mother responsible for the death of her child because of a cannabis gummy, we should be looking at the same effect with kids who are getting their hands on their parents' products that should be equally as regulated if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna say this mother deserves prison because her child died from getting into her gummies what ha what about these kids who are dying from from all these guns and I, I don't mean to get political I I, I support gun ownership but it, I think that there is a group of uh, you know a group of regulations that are supported by all sides and unfortunately it's not being allowed to, to happen because of the self-interests of a few greedy corporations. Mm, yeah. Which is similar in pharmaceutics and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It seems like uh, almost, almost everything has reached this late stage of capitalism and uh, some kind of reset might, might be required. <laughs> 
<laughs> I completely support that. <laughs> Unfortunately, it looks different to everybody who thinks that that should happen. And, and yeah, right. I don't the... know what the answer is. I just know that we <laughs> yeah. need something. <laughs> right, right. I Everyone mean, should do psychedelics and reset, and we'll all just I, start over. I love that idea. I love that <laughs> idea. <laughs> yes, we will be seeding clouds with LSD. <laughs> <laughs> Better than the silver iodide we're using right now. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, James, this has been a awesome conversation. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add that we haven't covered or, or that we did cover and you want to tack on to, or. I think it's been a great conversation. I appreciate the commentary um, between all of us in the discussion. Cause it, you know, it, it, it's such a wide complex topic and the only way that we're going to further the science and, and further the therapy is by educating people. And so I really value what you guys are doing, both with the CSC, as well as the publications, as well as these uh, podcasts, anything that we can do to continue to educate the public on how to how to use products safely to open their minds that they can use these products safely is 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 great. Wonderful. Well. Thanks for being with us today, James. We appreciate all your knowledge and your passion to help educate the cannabis community. 